Welcome film industry professionals, film buffs, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast presented by Paradoxical Films. And I'm your host, Michael Angelo Malachi. Guys, join us on a journey behind the camera and most importantly, beyond what we know about cinema and the craft of filmmaking. So sit down, grab your popcorn, drink your soda, and let's ride the cinema road together with Cinema Pathway. Welcome to all listeners across the world to your new film family, Cinema Pathway Podcast with your host, Michael Angel Malachi. Guys, this podcast is for film buffs, film lovers, film critics, people who make films, people who watch films, and people who just like to talk about film. You found your new family. See, art imitates life. Films are captured art stamps that are forever recorded in history. Think about it. A hundred years from now, when many generations look back at your work, how will your work be remembered? and your point of view impact life and in possibly what I like entire culture how do you wish to be remembered money fades and high positions of power big fade right but your art can last decades even centuries look at Vincent van Gogh for example whose artist lasted what 200 years and counting in the minds of countless people that's why film is so precious our first guest has made and is making his stamp in the film world by capturing the raw beauty of urban life from its interesting highs to its gritty lows and everything in between steering clear of damaging and limiting stereotypes that marginalize and devalue rich and downright captivating stories of a culture full of heart, bravery, and a brazen will to survive. Adversity builds character, but it also builds stories that are perfect for film. Like so many directors before him, like the infamous Spike Lee, Tyler Perry, and Lee Daniels, Mr. Smith has undoubtedly capitalized on a culture that keeps on giving, not to mention <clears throat> winning a Best Director Award nomination, a Music Video of the Year Award, and a Best Independent Film Accolade with over 1 million viewers and counting on the very popular movie channel Tubi in just two weeks. And in two weeks, he said to release the blockbuster in 2024 named Vendetta. I just like the name Vendetta. You know, not V for Vendetta, but this is like the new Vendetta. <laughs> Starring Grammy Award-winning, nominated, hopefully in the future award-winning, actor Kimani Marley, Paul Campbell, and rising comedian Major Hype. Not Maha Hype, it's Major Hype. If you want some Major Hype in the comedy world, go to Major Hype. Now, Antoine, I have to ask, what was the moment that you realized that you wanted to do this professionally? Well, first, let me say thank you for having me on your show, Michael. It's a hey. pleasure. It's an honor to be here and appreciate you guys, your crew, your team. Everything's been uh, A1 professional. Thank you. Um, But to answer your question, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in my 40s and I was born in the late 70s. And I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, or at least I knew I, I was in love with cinema, probably from about five years old. And as far as being wanting to be a filmmaker, I think that love came when I was about 16, 17 years old, that I wanted to be a director. 17 years old. So let me know, what was that drama class like? Did you take drama? Because, I mean, most 17-year-olds aren't, aren't, you know, planning to be the next, you know, Steven Spielberg. Was this something like a teacher said that said, man, I got to do this forever? Well, as you know, in high school, they make you take these courses and classes. It's part of the curriculum. And we have to take a drama course. I think I took drama one in, in 10th grade, drama two in 11th. And um, I think in 11th grade, uh, we had to do an assignment where, you know, we had to act in our own little production thing that we had to do in class. What was it? And, um... <laughs> I, I, I vaguely remember, but I just know I had to be the actor in some type of little small production we had to do in class. And then we had to switch. You know, we had to now direct someone 
in the class in our own little mini production. And I'm going to tell you, I enjoy the directing part, telling people what to do and pointing and getting things done and people have to listen to you. That's when I knew, you know what? This might be my calling because I wasn't a great actor. <laughs> this might be what I need to be doing. So wait a minute. So for all the people that you've directed in the future, you like that power. <laughs> Hey, it's honest though. You know what was my first moment I realized I wanted to be an actor? At least when I liked films. I was in high school, same thing. Um, I had just taken a drama class and it was something I was forced to do. I used to like video games when I was a kid. Had nothing to do with drama, right? Nothing to do with films, right? But I realized art is art. I was on stage and there was one line that I said. I forgot what it was. I had to drop a watermelon on the ground, do stunts. That was my first stunt, right? And the director looked at me and said, I see so much potential from just the way you drop that watermelon. Now, <laughs> are there any actors that you worked on on set that you can see like, you know what? I see potential in that as a director to direct you to do something great. Yeah, listen, it's been, you know, I've been on sets over 20, close to 25 years. And it's always one or two people that you work with who haven't got their shot yet. And they on here just because maybe we can afford somebody else. They put their heart into it. And you notice that, you know what? They have something. It ain't all the way there yet. But in like a year from now, yeah. five years from now, they're going to be somebody. And I've seen it all the time, my whole career. Okay. Antoine, when we look back at our lives, we realize that just like in films, you know, there are a series of events that occur. You know, all the dots are somehow connected that ultimately push us into our destiny or ultimate purpose on earth, right? Was there anything growing up that you believe ultimately shaped your destiny? And to being like that prolific filmmaker that you are today, like any memories that inspire you like to do all the work you've done now currently? Yeah. Well, you know, when it comes to cinema, like I say, you know, um, you know, my mom had me. She was 18 years old. My dad was, you know, I think 26 years old. So he's much older than my mom. And my mom loved just going to the movies. She's 18, 19, 20 years old. You know, I'm, you know, I remember as early as four maybe five, about four years old, going to see a Richard Pryor Bustin' Loose movie, whatever year that came out, like 81. Oh, I love right. Richard Pryor. And I remember, I'm four years old, maybe four and a half, and I'm going to see these R-rated movies with my parents, with my mom. Wait, 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 hold on. You watched an R-rated movie at four? Okay, all right, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, Go ahead. Shout, you know, shouts to my mom, but God rest, rest in peace. You know, I grew up, Going to see a lot of these Richard Pryor movies because my father was a Richard Pryor fan and we used to go see all his movies in the early 80s. And then I got lucky. I was born in the age right when cable was being introduced into people's homes in 81, 82, 83. Okay. And back in those days, you could be five, six years old and on teacher's work day, you don't have to go to a babysitter. You could be home alone because it's the early 80s. There's no kidnappings. There's nothing happening. If we can go back to a time like that, isn't that amazing? But anyway, go ahead. No, the events that happened in my life that kind of led me down a path to what I'm doing now is definitely I grew up in an age where cable TV was just coming into the homes of regular folk. You know what I mean? You know, regular people can, you know, afford cable TV. And, you know, we had two televisions and we had cable TV. And, you know, can you imagine I got cable at the turn of the age where we got Empire Strikes Back just now coming out on cable in 1981. Uh, we, uh, Indiana Jones, 1981. Remember, remember these, those movies came out in 1980. So they hit cable TV a year later. You weren't freaked out? Yeah, I love those type of movies. And then a couple years later, you got... Empire Strikes Back, you got, you know, a Chariots of Fire. I mean, listen, I'm five years old. I'm loving Chariots of Fire, you know, and I, I just love the music. And 
I'm a big fan of movies like Arthur. I love the movie Arthur, Arthur 1 and Arthur 2. Okay. This is what I'm watching at five, six, seven years old when you could be home alone during those days. And what a time back then, huh? Tell me about it. And I'm soaking all these things up. And then, you know, I came into, I'm born, born into an era where hip hop music started to come alive around 86, 87, 88. And that kind of influenced, you know, me to be more conscious of my environment. And that led me to want to get into doing urban films, telling stories about where I come from, my neighborhood, and what I saw. You know, talking about hip hop music, um, I love Ice Cube, number one. For anyone who doesn't know who Ice Cube is, he's another prolific rapper from the urban jungle. He's just really good. But when I saw him acting for the first time, I was shocked. I was like, wow. It's not only what he puts on paper, but someone saw something beautiful. Someone captured his story and the millions of other people that follow him. Is that what kind of gave you the juice to make the movies that you do now? Because your movies are a lot about urban jungle into something beautiful to watch. Well, most people just you know dismiss it and say, oh, it's just what it is. Is that what inspired you to do the movies you do now? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. Basically, that's that's part of it. You know, I get my storytelling and I get my visuals, not only from the directors that I grew up loving, like I said, the Spike Lees, the Keenan Ivory Wayans, Robert Townsend, you know, a lot of people don't mention those those last two directors I just mentioned, the only Spike Lee's or whatever. But remember, I grew up in the golden age of hip hop. And I think the golden age of hip hop, they would say from this 1986 to, you know, to whatever in the 90s. And I grew up in that age. So what that means is not only I'm getting cultural information pumped through my cassette tape, music videos start coming out around that time. That was Will Smith, that's creative. right. Fresh Prince and parents don't understand. And I'm seeing these rappers telling stories in their neighborhoods now. I'm starting to get a visual interpretation. Like, okay, that's how you can show people, you know, going through what I see in my neighborhood today. And, you know, I'm growing up, in the age of public enemy and they're showing base heads running around yeah. and stuff. Okay. Well, I see that. I, I, I see that in my grandmother's around my grandmother's house, you know, in the neighborhood. So when it's time for me to start doing my own films, I already had 10 year head start because in the late eighties, I was already seeing this on film. It's already registered. And I know how to tell that urban tale about drugs in the community. Cause I saw an LL Cool J video in 1988, 89, all the way through the nineties. See, being a director is all about your point of view. Yeah. I really believe that that's why everyone's story shouldn't be changed. You shouldn't change who you are. Just polish it up a little bit, go to school. So then you can cultivate what's in your mind into millions of people. Millions of viewers. I noticed that in a lot of your movies, like you know, Fade Away Goons, you love close-ups. Oh, yeah. And yes. you love third, <laughs> like third-person point of view. Yeah. I mean, what inspired you to just get in people's faces? You just like seeing the the motions and. Yes, I'm gonna tell you a joke. You know, you pay attention. You pay attention. Okay. And I'm glad you mentioned that. That's I do my, my homework. That's my style. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you something before I really get into the reason why I captured those shots. You know, a lot of my sister directors throughout my movies, we're always running behind in my movies. It's always overtime. I got. Well, you know, my partner Isaac over there tell you, listen, close-ups is what bring you into the story. I can have the craziest wide shot, but this is not a music video. I don't care about them necessarily just how scenic it looks in this particular shot. If I got a close-up on you and you crying, you're going to feel it. If I take that same shot of you crying and I get a, just a wide shot, it's lost. I'm not pulled in. I see you crying. I feel bad. But if I got that close up on you and that teardrop coming down, that light over there just hitting just right, you're going to feel it. That's why a close up is 
everything and I won't move on until I got it. I don't care if we two hours behind. I just can tell you, I don't care. I mean, have there been times where you have like many hours doing one scene? Because I'll be honest with you, most people are not willing to be vulnerable like that and emotional like that, especially Emmett Smith and Cousin. I was not expecting that out of him, right? But again, your movies, they break stereotypes. You humanize people that are usually dehumanized by the world and thrown away, right? As a director, how do you get an actor to be that vulnerable and that honest and that human on the spot? Does it take hours to like coax it out of them? What do you say? How do you get into their head? That's a great question, brother. Um, each actor is different, but my experience, because fortunately, unfortunately, but fortunately, I've a lot of movies, movies I've got to work with actors that acting for the first time and like I said that's a gift and you know that's been a good thing and a bad thing because that that's also made my days on my shoes very long trying to coach these new actors but a lot of these guys have to be you have to pull the character out of them what my method is you know number one if you work with an actor whether he's acting or not acted before you if you're trying to get him to become a certain character you have to put him in that element so if I want my character to, uh, you know, to portray, you know, somebody that's fearful or something. But in real life, this guy may be the biggest guy on the block. He's never been scared of nothing in his life. You have to give him an example of something that might may have happened or may not have happened in his real life or something that he's seen, like, you know, and make him think about that moment. And then you rehearse it with him and get him as close to that point as you can to show that fearness. And then you roll camera. And like I say, sometimes, you know, it may take a few takes, but you just have to tell your actor, don't act this character, become the character. Find something in your childhood, find something. Emotional recall, basically what they call it. To remind you of why you should be fearful in this scene. And like I say, it works most of the time. And and I want to add, it's no exact science. I want to say this. I know people who's going to watch this and try to take notes and they may understand what I'm saying. They may not. It's no exact science, but I'm just giving you the basics of where to start from to pull that character out of your actor. Now, that's a little fun question for you. What would the young you, what kind of movie would the young you make? If five, if the five-year-old who watched, you know, Empire Strikes Back and all that had with you no know, no money, no budget, there was no obstacles in, in the way. What kind of movie would you make, honestly? I'm going to tell you something. I grew up, like I say, watching a lot of comedies. You know, I grew up on a lot of Richard Pryor movies in those early first five, six years of the 80s. I would probably make, the younger me would make, would probably be making comedies. Like, you know, I grew up, like I say, in the age of like those early 80 Richard Pryor movies that always made me laugh. And the young in me at that time, that's what attracted me to movies, the ones that make you laugh. So I'll probably be making comedies, you know, uh, all types. Like, I'm into, listen, once again, I just got to take you guys back. You know, I grew up in the 80s, the golden era of these movies. I grew up with Porky's 1, 2, and 3, and 4. And I, I, I grew up with, you know, all these fantastic, funny, teenage uh, geared toward movies. And I think that's what I, I would be making. But then as I got older and in the 90s, there was a turn in filmmaking. You know, it went from not just the quirky movies, action movies start becoming the thing in the 90s. And then it went from the action to dramatic movies towards the late 90s. And I'm going to tell you something, because of maybe some childhood issues I probably don't have resolved, as an adult, I think I got connected to the dramatic movies. 
Like, I love movies. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a movie called... Which one of your favorite movies of all time? I'm going to tell you. Oh, hold on. Hold okay. that. And with that, stay tuned to know more about the prolific filmmaker and director Anton Smith as we dive into how he made some of those award-winning films. And stay tuned a little later because we put Mr. Smith into a segment I called The Hot Seat. We ask him about some fiery questions about life and film that may shock you and may uh, make you think a little bit. And of course, we're going to know what Anton Smith's favorite movie is. More with Anton Smith in a minute. Cinevideotech and Paradoxico Films are pleased to bring you Tell Your Story Master Training Workshops. You will learn how to work with actual 16mm and 35mm film and film cameras, as well as how to load and change magazines. In addition, the workshop will teach you what it takes to work on set as a first or second assistant camera, the fundamentals of lighting, and the pathway to becoming a director of photography. Visit www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash tell your story for information on dates, pricing, and how to sign up. Hurry as seats are limited and classes are filling up quickly. Welcome back, family. I am joined by prolific filmmaker Mr. Antoine Smith. Now, in 2012, Antoine earned a nomination for Best Director and actually won Best Independent Film at Best in Florida Awards for his masterpiece, Bloodline, The Sibling Rivalry. Now, anyone in the world can relate to having a sibling rivalry, right? The favorite child versus the black sheep of the family. Or the one sibling that always seems to have it all together and says all the right things at all the right time, a.k.a. that guy. And if you're one of those people, stop it now. But my question to you is, have you ever seen or experienced sibling rivalry yourself that inspired you to the film? Uh, No, actually, um, I grew up an only child, you know, pretty much my whole adult life. My parents uh, uh, divorced uh, when I was like 10 years old. But ironically, my mother... You know, she moved away to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, Many years later, probably towards her late 40s, she ended up having a daughter, which is my sister Angel. She's 25 years old now. And so, you know, now the sibling rivalry part, like I said, I grew up only child, so I didn't have to worry about that. But now my sister, you know, she's grown. She's 25. She has her opinions. And I love her to death. And, you know, we don't always see eye to eye on everything, but most things. So uh, can we loosely say that maybe this film had somewhat an inspiration with your with your beautiful sister, Angel? Is that what we're saying? Well, at the time, she was just a little baby when we first did that film. But I'd have been around, I had a big family, so I'd have been around my family members all my life. And I've seen the right sibling rivalries, you know, amongst my family members. So, yeah. OK. But what inspired you to get this work off the ground? Because this was your debut. This is like the the world's first look into your mind of who you are. Was it like a pressure there? What was going through your mind? How that happened is, um, you know, I graduated film school in 2001. And um, the people that came to me to direct that film was some support, early supporters of mine while I was in film school. Uh, my, guy, my guy named Fence, he runs a company called um, Icons uh, Music and Films. here in Icons Music and Films. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, they own Audiovision Studios in North Miami. They, they own it now. And... Um, his, they wanted to do a movie about Miami, and they came up with this idea about these two brothers that has different fathers, and they end up getting split apart, you know, as a young age. But then they meet each other 
years later and one is on the right hand right side of the law and the other one's on the opposite side of the law and that's what's the thing with a movie about these two one is a cop one is a drug dealer and one has to take out the other what are you gonna do so but this was the original idea of my partner fence one of my partner fence and um he just believed in me. I was young, coming out of school, early 20s. I went to an international finance college. Got late, the name later changed to Miami International University of Arts and Design. Okay. Shout by, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Class of 2001. So that was his idea. And I'm going to tell you, it was a great concept. We shot that movie uh 2004, I believe. 2003, 2004, and it became a street classic. I mean, we sold a lot of DVDs and videotapes at the time, and that movie still gets, yeah, listen, that movie get talked about around the world. DVDs and videotapes, the youngins have forgot. Can you explain what a DVD is again? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, DVD is that little circular thing used to come in a big square box. <laughs> I've never seen one. You know, I, I thought that, you know, it's just back in the prehistoric ages, but, you know, film. But if you ever want to look back to old films, look for a DVD. DVD. Can you old. believe we've gotten to that age where now DVDs are considered classic? Listen, I, I joke <laughs> with my partner Isaac about that all the time. Like, it's amazing. A DVD is considered, like, no obsolete now. Now, see, you got me thinking. All right, this is a little deeper question now. We'll throw you off a little bit, you know. All right, we know that the major controversy of making films are tax exemptions, right? We just talked about earlier when you came in that Broward has finally you know, left up of some of those tax inceptions to make movies here and Miami has not. Now, if you think about it, Miami and Broward are pretty like rivalries, right? They really are. They're like, they're part of the same coin. Sibling rivalries. They really are. Why do you think films, right? Or why the tax incentives are not being taken as seriously in Miami or at least taken for actors and for some reason places like Atlanta and New York and LA are totally for it. Your producer made a great point. It's, it's simple politics. You have a particular, uh, and I'm not going to say it's a Democrat-Republican thing, yeah. but you have particular individuals that's in political power here who feel like tax incentives is not important. Why do you think so? Why do you think they're not important? I, I know why they're important. Right. Because when you're sitting in an office just on paper trying to make tax cuts and you feel like, well, giving money to filmmakers don't bring any benefit to our city. It's just they're uninformed because I'm going to tell you, for example, just on a lower level, how tax incentives will help a film like Cuzzo. When we do a film like Cuzzo for 60 grand, not, no big deal, just 60 grand. But for two weeks of work, I'm able to employ about 10, 15 guys. That have families. That got families. That when they had this employment, I get to employ them. And then when we're finished our little 10 days of shooting, I get to employ an editor for the next three months who has a family feed. Then I get to employ the sound guy, the music guy. I end up pulling permit. We had to pull permits for Cuzzo. The city made money. I had to pull a permit. Thank you. And it's uh, it's about 100 filmmakers, 200 filmmakers, just like me doing the same thing. So you pull out your calculator and you add up what I what revenue we just brought to the city and to families in your district and they won't never know that and if you think it business wise right the more films you make the more attention comes to the city Absolutely. the more attention comes to the city Absolutely. the more tourism the more people love it i mean look what uh miami vice did in the 80s for miami i mean in the 80s 
I'm, I'm real passionate about this because, you know, I'm an actor myself, so I get it. I want it to come back. I want always, I want Miami has beautiful weather, has beautiful landscapes, has so many different cultures of people. You have Haitians, you have Latinos, you have Caucasians, you have Asians, you have everything here. There's so much talent down here. That's why for your movie Cuzzle or any movie you've made, you have a huge talent pool. It's like, you know, throwing, you know, darts at a wall. You can find beautiful talent here. And I just wish for the people, you know, who those tax incentives for some reason, those politicians are not taking them up, please think about it. This could be something beautiful, not only for your city, but for generations that come here. Absolutely. You know? And I hope they're listening, you know? I hope they're listening. Now, the award-winning director, Spike Lee. You know Spike Lee, right? Yeah, I heard him. You heard him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of he course. has a beautiful way of depicting the often gritty and challenging ending of urban life, yet in a serious and colorful way. I mean, your style seems to complement him, but it's a little more fresh, a little more unique. What is your opinion on how urban life has been depicted in most films, you know, what we've seen before, versus your own fresh take now? Great question. Um, how urban life been depicted in films? Like I said, I came up in the golden age of urban cinema in the late 80s, early, and throughout the 90s. And in those 80s and early 90s, Black folks were always depicted as gangsters, drug dealers. The females were hookers, prostitutes, and scammers okay. and stuff like that. That's what come to see in, in uh, urban cinema during that time, the eight, late 80s and 90s. Nothing wrong with that. It is part of reality, but it's not the full reality. Absolutely. What I want to do is I had my share of movies in an earlier career that was a shoot 'em up and drug dealing and had the, you know, the, the half-dressed girls. But that's not the full story. So I was able later in my career to be, decide that, look, if I'm going to do an urban film, this is going to be the parameters. We're going to tell this story. And and my story, which, like I say, Cuzzo is the one that just got released this year. And um, I made a decision, like, when I was approached to do that film, because it wasn't my brainchild. A friend of mine approached me to do it, and he wanted to invest in himself in his own movie. I hadn't even read the script. All I said was, look, does anybody get killed in this movie? No. Are we having cocaine being sold in this movie? No. Okay. Uh, is there any prostitutes in this movie? No. I'm in. For all future film directors, <laughs> this is your checklist for any urban movie, please. If you do not have Thank this, you. okay, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. And he said, no. I said, okay, I'm in. Just like that. I'm in. And wow. then I find out what the full story was about. Because it's time to like reshape our urban stories. It doesn't have to have that. And I'm so happy that you and your team, you know, you watch Cuzzle and really got an understanding for what that film was supposed to be about because that's part of our story in, in urban culture. Emmett's, that's the character's name. Not everybody come out of prison to go back and rob, to go back in. This guy came out and said, I'm gonna get me a job. I'm gonna get in the music business, I'm gonna open up a restaurant, and I'm gonna stay out of trouble. And that's exactly what he did. See, that's what I love about filmmaking the most, and that's why the job of the filmmaker or filmmaker or director is so important because it's about your point of view. You know, the point of view of urban life before I'm not saying it's wrong. It's part, but it's really more sensationalism. And you're trying to feed someone's pocket, which I get it. You gotta, sometimes you got to make videos or people make videos and things of that nature just to make money, blah, 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 blah. But when you cut out the middleman and you realize these people have jobs, they have families, they go to church, you know, they believe, they live, they bleed. You know what I'm saying? Instead of marginalizing a group of people and saying, this is what you are and this is how we best market you, why don't you start changing the mindset of people coming up 
for generations saying, you know what, I don't have to be that. Even though a lot of people, you know, give people like Bill Cosby. It was nice to see a beautiful, you know, uh, upper class family, you know, and you could be upper class in a, you know, financially poor neighborhood. Money doesn't mean class. You can do the same exact thing with little money, but you can show someone morals. You can show someone ultimately who to hang with, what kind of jobs to get. Things that only propel you forward. And as a filmmaker, I love your point of view of urban life. I mean, I'm not saying others haven't, but you definitely give it more positive spin. So Thank kudos you. to that. Thank you. Now, on that, I know you did the movies Fade Away and Goons. I mean, in your directorial point of view, how are they similar? But what's what's one blaring difference between them and like in the point of view? Well, you know, Fade Away, um, we shot that movie about um shot about a decade ago, but it came out in 2018 and um that movie was distributed through Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. So it was a big deal to have that film, you know, um, come through such a prestigious distribution company. How it's different is that our main character, you know, he goes through a, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, metamorphosis of growth. You know, he starts as, as a kid who just want to go to school, want to go to college, make his grandmother proud. Then he gets, a, he gets to go to college and has a knee injury. He has to drop out. What are you going to do when you whole life you're riding you're banking i'm gonna go to the nba and make millions of dollars you can't do it no more comes home and gets encouraged to maybe get into drug business which he does which is the easy way out easy way out but and i'm glad you pointed that out because he finds out that but we know in life nothing's easy but everything has a price you took words right on where he finds out nothing comes easy because that fast money led to the death of his friend it led to him almost getting killed it led him coming back full circle where he began out of the drug game trying to go back to school and do the right thing which he could have done from the beginning of the movie but he had to go through these trials and tribulations and that's the message i was so happy to be able to show people that look if you're just gonna give up on your dreams because you had one setback and you're just gonna take the easy ride out well watch this character right and see what happens to him and he almost loses his life and he loses his best friend loses everything and now he's back to square one <laughs> well he started in the beginning so you just did all that for nothing <laughs> you know? So if you were to try the right way, yeah. but you know what? That's why these movies are so important because you have to show people there are other options. Right. There isn't just two or three options that based depend on your race, on where you grew up, on your adversity, you know? But I noticed the one where you kind of got around, because you didn't have, obviously you don't get a limited budget, right? You said it in these movies. And I know you like action because you you know mentioned earlier, you do a lot of these over the shoulder shots. Oh, yeah. And you kind of like <laughs> shake the camera. You pay attention. So I'm telling you. Because, you know, I'm, I'm Cuban, I'm Latino, you know, so I come from a culture where you kind of just have to make it up as you go. And whatever's around is what you can take. But sometimes that's where the magic comes, because that's where the authenticity comes around. What was your technique in making action without having a huge set and blowing up cars? Like at, from a from a camera point of view, what was your technique? What did you tell them to do? Was it like, you know, go back and forth really fast or shake the camera like actual when you don't limit a budget but you're still trying to create the action and you're trying to get your audience to go on that action journey with you simple camera tricks will simply be a moving camera even if it's handheld which i don't do much handheld but i like having cameras on steady cams gimbals even a walking scene could be an action scene if that camera's positioned right and you can follow behind that person you know so i would say put your camera on a gimbal a dolly a steady cam a crane, something that provides movement, and that would give you a give your audience a sense of a visual uh, action feel because something is moving rather oh, than being just still. Put it like on the gimbal and just go and j- and just go. And then I'm gonna tell you another little trick too. Okay. Are you writing this down, guys? Right? Yeah. Trick little, number two. Yeah. On a limited budget. Absolutely. <laughs> another trick too is shutter speed. 
you know, um, shutter speed. Yeah. Okay. You know, you know, a lot of us set our shutter speeds at certain points. I would say, you know, put that shutter degree, set it at like a 90 degree shutter speed okay. to get that saving private Ryan look was real flickery. You do your fingers like this. You see the flickerness in your <laughs> finger. That gives you another little oomph of action in a scene that doesn't have that much action. You know, play around with your shutter speed, you know. You never know, right? Yeah, shutter speed, trust me. Just play around with it. Put it at 90 degrees. You got to add a little bit light, but play it, put it at 90 degrees and just, just date me later. Now I'm going to throw a fun question at you. I have to. Before the segment ends, I have to. All right, I call it the Battle of the Lees. Okay? okay. Both Lee Daniels and Spike Lee are successful world-renowned directors in their own right. I mean, I know we shouldn't pit people against each other, and they're all beautiful, but are you Team Spike Lee or Lee Daniels? And why? Now, you can say both. Doesn't mean you have to choose one or the other. But in your personal opinion, if you had to work with one director, which one would you choose at the moment? Oh, absolutely. Spike Lee. Okay. Now, that's not to take away from Lee Daniels. No, no, no. He's amazing in his own right. Uh Spike Lee is the pioneer, in my opinion. All those Gordon Parks and a lot of other directors, even, uh, um, you know, um, uh, Bill Cosby had directed some things. Uh, Sidney Poitier was a great director in the 70s. An actor. Yeah, an actor. <laughs> a Oscar award winning actor. Oscar, absolutely. <laughs> you know, Spike Lee, what he did was, and that Lee Daniels is a child of, Spike Lee took all that knowledge from the city port in the years, the Gordon Parks, you know, uh, the Bill Cosby, you know, when he was directing the Fat Albert and all that stuff in the 70s. He took all their stuff and he added style. He gave us the dolly shot where it looked like you're walking, but he's not walking. You know, the down the street thing. Spike Lee created that Did he stuff. use that shutter speed thing? You think he used it? I've never seen him use the shutter speed thing, but he created moving shots, new moving shots I had never seen in my life. He also used uh, Luma cranes. Luma cranes is, is now, you know, they're called techno cranes. Now the big cranes that got the arms that extend, stand, stand out. And they can retract back into themselves. You know, it's a shot in Do the Right Thing that was shot in 1988, came out in 89, where he takes a shot that's outside of a Brooklyn brownstone and it goes through the window, through the house, through somebody's bedroom where we see Ossie Davis laying in bed, you know, burning up from the sun weather. <laughs> Could you imagine what those people felt like? I know. Like, having I, that? <laughs> I, I've never seen that in the history of my life. Like a camera go outside through somebody's window, through their living room, into their bedroom in one shot. I didn't see that in the 70s. You know, from, you know I didn't see that in City Port in the Air movie or Bill Cosby movie. I seen that in Spike Lee movie. Okay. And I've seen people like Lee Daniels take that knowledge and manifest and turn it into something else, but Spike Lee did it first. So that's why he's my choice. All right, Mr. Spike Lee, if you, if you want to work with Antoine Smith, the prolific filmmaker, we would love to have you on this show and work with beautiful movies with Mr. Antoine Smith. But with- let me, well, let me say this one in the row. One 30-second Spike Lee story. I had the opportunity to finally meet him in like 2002 at the Improv Comedy Show in Coconut Grove. And I'm going to tell you something. He broke my heart a little bit. I meet him at the comedy show. I'm filming. I'm there filming something for, at the time, we're filming a, one of the, we filmed a, a comedian to be a skit on one of Trick Daddy's early albums in the early 2000s. So I'm there at the Improv. Chris Rock is there. Spike Lee is there. Spike Lee's in town shooting something around that time. This is 2002. In Miami, he's here shooting something, a part of documentary something. And after the show, he's my hero. This is the guy I'm doing film because of this guy. I go meet him. And he totally blows me off. 
Yeah, no. He, I, I, I tried to shake his hand. He just he rarely gave me this handshake. And he well, says, one day you will meet him. And after this interview, maybe you'll see him. And with that, we want you to stay tuned as we tackle the greatest project Mr. Smith has done yet. Guys, this is one million views and counting on Tubi. That is a wonderful feat. And of course, the movie's called Cuzzo. Guys, I watched it last night. I can see why. It's been one million views. We've gone in. back with Mr. Antoine Smith, who looks like he's ready for part three. You ready for part three? Uh, <laughs> see you guys I'm later. Ready. <laughs> I'm ready. We would like to take a moment to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who has been providing filmmaking equipment, training, and services to the film industry both inside and outside the United States since 1968. M2 Films, who provides directing, writing, and assistant director services. ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment, marketing, advertising, and commercial projects. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with Cinema Pathway Podcast and our guest, the director, the prolific. Any other words you want to suggest uh, that I tell you? The wonderful. I think you said it all. The future <laughs> Oscar award winning Antoine Smith. And we present to you Cuzzo, an award winning movie directed by Antoine Smith, already being seen by over one million people, guys. That's one million people on Tubi on only a $60,000 budget. And I just heard from him just recently, they did it in 11 days. Wow. I mean, for any, for all of those who think they need money and connections are the only ways to make good work. Apparently, Mr. Antoine here has a different story to tell. This is very similar to the Oscar award winning movie made here in Florida, Moonlight. You know Moonlight, right? Yeah, of course. Which also had like a you know, shoestring budget, and but they had a lot of heart and a phenomenal story. The phenomenal success of the film proved that with a fantastic, good, and unique story with a deep, heartfelt message and dedicated cast and a dedicated director, hint, hint, Mr. Antoine Smith, history can be made. Now, what is the most challenging scene to do in that entire movie? I think one of the hardest scenes we had was the finale scene. And I'm going to tell you why. The finale scene was also the day that we had award-winning actor Glenn Plummer. You guys, um, we had Glenn Plummer in that scene. He Glenn played. Plummer? Yeah, we Glenn played. Plummer? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. If you, if you guys know, don't know who Glenn Plummer is, Glenn Plummer, just Google him. He was in Colors. If you remember the iconic scene in the film Colors, directed by Dennis Hopper, um, Glenn Plummer's fighting Sean Penn on Venice Beach. They're in a restaurant. They're fighting. They're on top of stoves and everything. That's... The iconic Glenn Plummer. See, that's your action, see? That's exactly. the action stuff you like from a kid. A- absolutely. It's coming back. I always tell you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to tell you something before I get to Cuzzo. Yeah. You know, like I said, in 1987, you know, I'm probably 10 years old. And I would never thought in the history of my life I'll be working with that guy on the movie channel on cable. Well, get dec- ready for more. Yeah, decades later. But um, Cuzzo. But, but we shot all his scenes, which he had a couple of scenes in the movie. And we shot the finale scene all in the same day. We're, we're talking about at least a 15-hour day. And then that's shooting. And then you still got to rap. That's <laughs> another hour and a half. So that was like one of the longest, most difficult days. And what's so iconic about that situation is because the finale scene, which you and I have been talking about off camera on today, is basically everything you see in that finale scene is really one take. 
because I'm 13 hours in. With some of that stuff ad-libbed? And that's going to lead me to some of the lines being ad-libbed, which is an iconic line you and I been talking about, which I'll let you bring up. Can I read some of them? Yeah, oh yeah, go ahead. All right, guys, just listen. Either we're going to kill each other or work together. I spent five years trying to kill you. I also spent the second five years learning how to forgive you. I don't want to be friends with you, but I do forgive you. And then this is when the antagonist, you know, the protagonist is Emmett Smith, the antagonist is, you know, the guy he's going against. He leaves... He goes to his car. And instead of having those cliches like we see in all those urban movies, <clears throat> including Spike Lee, hey, you know, nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying this is the truth. You either have a, a big shootout or, you know, he kills somebody or he curses them out or some kind of big dramatic blah, blah, blah. Instead, and all he says is he looks him straight in the eye and says, stay up. What a message it is to our young people, to people in general. So whenever you're having a discussion with somebody, doesn't mean you have to be their friend. Doesn't mean you have to agree. You know how many murders, how many disputes, how many people wouldn't be filled in those jails right now if they just took five seconds and said, you know what? We agree to disagree. I mean, we have wars all over the world. We all know what they are. You know, Middle East, we all know what's going on, right? But even if those countries said the same thing, I don't agree in your religion. I don't agree the way you, you, know, you grew up. I'm not going to allow you to tell me or dictate what my life should be, right? Because everybody has their own convictions. Everybody has their own moral ground. But I, we agree to disagree. Walk away, but I still wish the best for you. Stay up. What was that scene like, the film? Listen, like I say, although we was under incredible shooting pressure, time pressure to shoot that scene. Remember, you know, um, rehearsals is a big part of my productions. I don't care how small the movie is, how big it is. We're going to rehearse. And um, Practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. So we rehearsed that. And while we were going throughout our day, you know, Mike and Dennis, and if you guys haven't seen the movie, um, Dennis, who plays the antagonist, Tommy, uh, he played in, uh, he's been on TV half his life, but he's played in the uh, Notorious B.I.G. movie back in 2009 that did very well at the box office. He's he's on TV shows on BET, uh, uh, including the family, uh, the family business and uh, so many shows he's been a part of. And watching them two on screen together, because Dennis is obviously the veteran of the two actors. This is Mike's first film. Dennis has been in, you know, $100 million films. And watch them two kind of knock this thing out in one or two takes and for some lines to be ad-libbed and for Dennis to receive that line and know exactly what his beats are to respond to that. You know, it was it was a good thing to see. How did it challenge your directing skills? Because it's like this. As much as I, it challenged my directing skills as far as technique go, not mm. direction. Because these guys got some directions. Do we've been rehearsing. You guys are having a conflict here. We know the story. And you know the story. We felt emotional recall. But what was the, what were the techniques? But my techniques, but my thing is this. Sometimes, you know my style, because we talked about it earlier. I want to get my wide. I want to get my medium. I want to get my close. I want to get my Spike Lee shots. But in a scene like that... Oh, Spike Lee shots right, right. now. Okay, go right. ahead. But in a scene like that was heavily emotional and tension. I can't get I can't get it, but I choose not to because it's just moments in a wide shot where Mike is not going to respond the same if I cut camera and try to do some kind of fancy low angle shot. It's just not going to be the same. So I let it play out. I let it play out. And then I have to make a decision. Well, he just did it great in his wide shot. He's probably only got one more in him to give me that emotion. And of course... I was right because the shot that you and I have been talking about, he gives the line, Mike says, hey, I spent the first five years trying to figure out how I'm going to kill you and the last five years trying to figure it. I decided that I'm not going to get a true close-up because I just don't have the time. I'm going to do a little something over the shoulder of Dennis, a little dirty to frame, put the camera over Dennis' shoulder and capture his mic so the audience feel like they're Dennis. Because by putting Dennis' shoulder, putting the camera over Dennis' shoulder, we become Dennis. 
Mike is talking to us. So and, like the Spike Lee ninety, so to speak. And then we still right, right. And we still got that. Me- <laughs> we still got that medium shot of Mike, medium close shot of Mike. So I got a little, both of best worlds a little bit going on. And sure enough, he hit the line that you and I have been repeating, you know, throughout this show, and it worked. So those are the decisions you have to make. Sometimes you got to know when to pull back from your stylistic desires. See, the reason why I think veteran actors, of course, we give the veteran actors their flowers. But to me, especially on set, I would treat everyone equally, you know, because ultimately we're human beings. And it doesn't matter how many years you've gone to school. doesn't matter how many skills you've acquired throughout your life. Emotional recall is emotional recall. And I'm sure that guaranteed they both have had that moment in their life play out in so many different ways, but probably played out in the wrong way. Oh, absolutely. Who haven't tried to walk away from a fight in real life, you know? See, it pays me to say this, but I'm torn between having compassion for an ex-convict, which is Evan, right? That wants to redeem their life and start anew versus forgiving them for all the pain their crimes caused, right? I mean, especially if you're the victim of their crimes directly. I mean, we've seen some really bad crimes, right? Murder, rape, things of that nature. I mean, this gets deep. And when it affects you, it's a different story. Everyone talks forgiveness, but when it comes to their family and their camp, it's a different story, right? Edmund Brown was a prominent figure in your movie, Cousin, and he returns to society seeking redemption. As a director, walk me through the process of creating compassion for a character who was essentially a bad guy into somebody the viewer roots for? Very good question. That's tough. <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> um, Cuzzo was initially, our first draft of Cuzzo was written by a good friend of mine named Max Gabriel. You know, he, he's a great urban story writer. Um, Max he, Gabriel. Right, Max Gabriel. Okay. Right here in Miami. He wrote the first draft of Cuzzo. I came in and did the second and third drafts on my own. I added about 20 pages to his script. One of the scenes I thought was important is what you just said. I want to make sure I humanize Mike and make sure the audience know that he is a changed man and believe it. There's a scene that Max originally wrote that I just came and fixed up a little bit where um, Emmett comes home to start his music career and start a restaurant. Well, his antagonist, Tommy, his goons break into the recording studio where he's recording his music and when he's, he's not there. And they steal the hard drives with all his new recruited always recorded music now in real life you're gonna go miguel you're gonna i mean michael you're gonna go yeah. grab your gun and you're gonna go get your music back but right although emmett's cousin isaac yeah. wants to go retaliate emmett says no i'm good i'm gonna go handle it another way so that's where those those close-up shots really come in because if you just see him as this wide shot gangster all you see is the change in this but if you see his eyes what's seen through his eyes right is his mannerisms you need that close-up to get in his face it's like oh he cries just like we are and, and listen it's a dramatic scene and like i said in the living room where emmett his cousin isaac is loading up the ak to go handle this emmett our character emmett comes in and be like yo what the hell are you doing we're not we're not doing it. We're not doing this this way. It's one of the best dramatic scenes I probably ever directed in my career on on an independent film level. And if the audience didn't believe that this ex-con is somebody to care about, that scene when he start he takes the gun out of his cousin's hand and say, "No, we're not going to handle it this way." That's the moment. That's the technique I use in my storytelling. And I, and I say this to other directors and and writers where if you didn't believe it the first. 20, 30 minutes of the film. I hope you now believe like this is a guy you can root for because he could have grabbed that AK-47 and went back and got his music. But he said no. And another technique, I'll just say this yeah, and wrap yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah. What I want to do also is just play 
on the audience mentality. I'm a human being. I'm watching this movie saying, grab the gun and go get your music back. And because he didn't grab the gun, the audience now becomes invested because they really wanted him to grab that gun. And now they care more they more than they ever did now because they really want to be him in that moment to grab that gun. And now they're invested to watch and to see if he's ever going to go do something at the end of the movie. Because at that moment, we brought him into Mike's world. We, we, everybody wanted Mike to grab that gun and do something. And that's, why, that's where they begin to care about him. At. And that's that's a trick. That's because the audience can visualize their own family members. Exactly. In that scene. And that's why I got And that's man. what good filmmaking. Congratulations why, on that. You see, that's why it's one million views. You see that? That's why I got them. Yeah. Now, after finishing your movie Cuzzle, I got to tread lightly because this is a, you know, this is a topic. But what do you feel about the well-known fact that our prison systems are packed with essentially thousands, if not billions of prisoners like Emmett Brown, who are disregarded by society to live in a world of judgment and punishment? Well, like I said, I understand that every individual, uh, you know, aren't angels. And some people that are in prison supposed to be in prison. The fact that, you know, people like, it's people like Emmett Brown in the movie, that's, it's a dozen, it's thousands of them in the prison system. Don't always sit well with me because I know part of that's because prisons become a business now. And sometimes it's good business to lock up as many people as you can. Can you repeat that again? Oh, bi- prison has Prisons become have become a, biz- a business. A business. Okay. Yeah, a business. Like a, like you go into a grocery store, it's a business. Did you hear that? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. And so I know it's a great percentage in there that's in there, not because they did the most horrific crime. They in there because the books say they need to be in there. And of course, that will never sit right with me. And I think that's why Cuzzle hit with so many millions of people. Honestly, that's the reason why it's a million. Because they can see this is this is the real life man that they can root for. The the beautiful thing about Emmett about Emmett Smith that you put was that he's not what's the word? I don't want to say bougie, but he's not bougie. You know, he speaks like people of our neighborhood. He's he has the same mentality. You didn't put the movie spin on it, you know? I don't like I don't like characters when they're brought out of their element, you know, kind of like when you gentrify a neighborhood. You didn't gentrify. You kept them exactly. And the entire movie, I was like, wow, I could really see this in Miami now. I mean, there's one scene where, you know, the number nine, you start. Okay, that was that got me. I mean, come on. You're getting out of prison and you either have take a Luma home in style. Right. Keep your image up, blah, blah, blah. Or take the number nine, your old neighborhood, who you are versus your future. If you had that choice, which one would you take? And you just came out straight out of prison. You know, now, what would I choose? Yeah. Would you choose keeping it real, you know, quote unquote, right? Or going in in style? My thing is this, you know. In the neighborhoods I grew up at, we all conditioned. Mm-hmm. If some stranger show up to you with, you know, a nice ride and tell you to get in, we all might say, "Oh, that's the police right there." Uh. So me, I, I have to give my answer. I might just get on that bus because I've been conditioned, you know, my whole childhood. But that's honest. Yeah, you know, that might be the police. I'm gonna get on number nine. <laughs> you see, it's all about your point of view, and if if you didn't have a very specific point of view, I don't know any film director who has kept it that honest and true to their original neighborhood. So kudos to that. Now, have you ever thought about making a documentary about the prisons, about millions of prisoners who come out 
making like a special, like, you know, there's like five or six persons. You, know, you can choose wherever you like, different cultures, different experiences, and what their life is like fresh out of prison. And how would you shoot that as a director? Because I know documentaries are different than movies, than scripted movies. Yeah, I haven't thought about making a, a documentary, you know, about, you know, the prison system or the activities that are going in the, in the prison. Because I'm going to tell you something, you know, my style has always been about telling what's going on here in the streets, what's really happening. That's what my films really has been been about. And I think that might be, you know, one of the best tools is telling what's going on out here so that person doesn't end up, you know, in prison. I don't have to do a documentary about it. But uh, if I was to ever do that, you know, I would love to dive into the psyche of a prisoner. That's what my documentary would be about, the psyche. Not, yeah, not the day-to-day activities. Oh, you wake up, you cook in, you, you send in kites and messages through the toilet and all that. My thing is about what is it like to wake be waking up at 5 a.m., have this brick sandwich as breakfast and to hang out in the yard with guys on that side that's, one who want to kill you, uh, guys on that side. Who want to kill that, you? That's a racist. Okay. And what is that life like? And what it does on your mental mental health? That's what my documentary would be about. What kind of shots would they would you have? What kind of tricks and shots would you have? Would it be third person or first person? Would it be the well? We now we we called it the Spike Lee ninety. What would be your your choice as a as a director? Uh, for my documentary film, we have to shoot it raw. When what I mean by raw, this is this is a little bit of handheld. Like, I wouldn't put this on dollies and steady cams and tripods. It, it got to have that fluent handheld style for a story like that. Oh. So you think the different st- the different shots actually change the intent of the character or the intent of the scene? Absolutely. I mean, listen, if I sit down and shoot a scene with you and it's nice and clean, we're on tripods and stuff like that, and we're having a general, uh, regular conversation, it's going to feel different. If I start doing some handheld stuff and moving around, I'm going to get a different feel from it. You know, I'm going to get a more, uh, uh, you know, grittier feel. And and it's going to provoke a different emotion inside of me, inside of my mind, visualizing that. And that's why, like, you know, I think a handheld style offers that. You know what I mean? So you ready for the next segment? Are you ready? Absolutely. Are you ready for the hot seat? Oh, yeah. Are you ready to talk about Vendetta? Oh, let's do it. But we have to, because you have three major hitters. I mean, you have a wonderful singer. You have a wonderful, amazing actor. You also have an amazing uh, comedian, right? Major hype, right? Which kind of reminds me of Richard Pryor a little bit-ish. He's good. Richard Pryor-ish, you know. I don't like comparing people because everyone has their own merit. But with that... Okay, we'll be back with you guys in just a minute. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating. Then you can head over to our online store at www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash shop where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear, including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. Welcome back, film family, to the concluding chapter of today's episode of Cinema Pathway Podcast with our guest, the prolific filmmaker, Mr. Antoine Smith. Now, Antoine, we must talk about your highly anticipated latest up-and-coming project, Vendetta. Not V for Vendetta. That's another movie. This is Vendetta, 
in 2024, starring Grammy-nominated artist-actor Kimani Marley, Paul Campbell, and comedian Major Hype. Now, is, is, is comedian Major Hype worth all the hype like his name? Oh, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me. <laughs> Trust me. He got I'm you ma- choked up, huh? Yeah, That's how you, good he is. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. Major Hype is, you know, a, a world-renowned comedian. He's not just famous in the United States. He's famous outside the United States. And I'm going to tell you something. He really did a great job playing a, um, uh, what's the nickname, uh, Muscle Man. Uh, not Muscle Man, but he, he came in playing an enforcer. Oh, and he did a major great job. hype the enforcer. Yeah, and he's a comedian, and trust me, he's scary as heck in this yeah. movie. What do you think he's going to bring to this? I'm gonna tell you something. Or what has he already brought to it? I'm gonna tell you something. He just, like I say, he just brought the authenticity of of just being a, playing the role that he played. Like I say, he came in as someone that's helping his friend get get their brother back. And he was the you know, the, the gunman. And the, the good thing about it is, like, he just wasn't some guy holding a gun. He really brought the character to life. Like, he embodied who that character is supposed to be. And um, Man, you he, love your tough characters. Oh, man. You're a tough character guy. Again, yeah. this yeah. goes back to the 80s. Oh, yeah. It's amazing what our psyche picks up. Yeah. That's why I keep saying that every time we do a film, anytime we sing, anytime we do any kind of art, it's a reflection of what's inside in our minds. Obviously, we're not exactly that person, but it's what influenced us in the future. See, if I made movies, honestly, because I'm a hopeless romantic, mine would probably be, you know, very romantic. Oh, it's nice. But I also love those action movies, those adventure things. So if you had the budget to make any kind of movie other than Vendetta, right? What kind of movie? If you had a dream project, you can hire anybody. What kind of movie would you make? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Remember, no, you have mm-hmm. all the connections in the world. Anybody, mm-hmm. anywhere, what would you do? Oh, I would make another Star Wars movie. Mm. <laughs> that's my dream project. But what's your take on Star Wars? You know, would it be urban Star Wars? Good question. <laughs> you know, it would. It would be a throwback to the Star Wars I grew up watching, which is the you know you know episode four, five, and six, you know of the eighties. You know, it would be something that takes us back there. Maybe we see another uh, a dimension of the galaxy in that universe, and we see these new characters. You know, these up and you know these up and comer uh, pilots and uh-huh. fighters and. Of the uh, of the guy, you know, of the uh, rebe- you know, the of the rebellion. A rebellion, okay. So this is another rebellion resolve yeah, movie. Absolutely, but, okay. But like I said, it would be more action. It wouldn't be just more talking and chasing and looking for planets. It'd be some hand, some more hand to hand combat, and just you know. It, it, and then one thing I've always loved about um, some of the Star Wars movies. And one thing I've always loved about the early Rocky movies, you know, um, is um, even in the middle of an action movie, it's good to have some character, uh, uh, some good character development, a good character moments. You know, you watch Empire Strikes Back. It's, it's, it's laser fights and stuff. But, you know, Luke finds out who his father is. Luke, yeah, yeah Luke. I am your father. Right, you know Han Solo, <laughs> you know Han Solo and Leia, Han Solo and Leia kiss, uh-huh. kiss for the first time. Who would like, be your Han Solo and Leia? You know, who would you cast? I'm gonna tell you something. 
anybody. I'm a big fan. My, my Luke Skywalker, I'm telling you uh-huh. my Luke Skywalker is. Uh-huh. I'm a big fan of Denzel's son. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say Denzel Washington. No, nah, not Denzel Washington. No, that's, you know, I, you know, that's You want someone younger? Group. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Den- Denzel's son is. But he's still amazing. John player. David Washington. He's a great young actor. John son David of Washington. De- son, son of the great Denzel Washington. He's one of my dream actors. That's my that's my Luke Skywalker. Wow. In, in my Star Wars. Okay, who will be your Leia? Mm. Come on now. Anybody. You can't, mm, can't Anybody. go wrong. My Leia. Yeah. I don't know. You can't go wrong with, I don't know, Megan Good or something. Oh, I don't know. okay. <laughs> I How don't would know. you direct that scene? As a director, would you use the same over-the-shoulder shot? Or would you make it a little bit more uh, wide angle now that it's a, like a, uh, an action film? You have the budget for it. Okay. Yeah. Remember, although I'm a big action fan, I'm also... Like, would money change your style? Right. Yeah. Money won't change my style because okay. I know what sells move well. Maybe not now, thanks to Marvel. I was going to say what sells films is character driven plots in there, but you know, Marvel is just showed us you don't need to fall in love with the characters. Just look at all these big green screen shots. Yeah. But I I definitely will stick with my close ups Mm. and my over the shoulders because I want to pull you into my characters. Because if I, this, 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 and and, and here's some advice for my filmmakers out there. Please. You've seen Star Wars a hundred times. So if I come with a new Star Wars, you probably think it's going to be another Star Wars, but what's going to make you come watch my three Star Wars from my, you know, my seven, eight, and the nine. Yeah. Is I'm gonna make you fall in love with the characters. So you're not necessarily coming to see the lightsabers and the, oh. and the Millennium Falcon. You coming to see? Are these two gonna kiss this on this episode? Yeah. Excuse me, on this yeah. film. Uh, it's 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 are my favorite character gonna die? Who I fell in love with on the last movie. Yeah. You know that's my formula. I mean, they're not exclusive of each other, right? But do you favor? heavy character development or heavy story because many times in, in most movies you have either have one or the other right. i mean there's so many movies out there where it's like you know the story was nice but i fell in love with the characters or you know the characters are okay but i fell in love with that story wow where did they get that story from i i want, I want to make sure i don't contradict what i say because yeah. like i said i'm a character driven yeah. director but i mean both I, are equally important yeah, yeah both are equally important yeah but I do want you to fall in love with the story. I think mm. I think good characters is going to make you in, appreciate my story more. Yeah. But a good story is going to make you enjoy the entire experience. Ooh, that, that, okay. That's my formula. Okay. If I'm, I, and I hope I didn't confuse anybody because I didn't want to no. contradict myself. So is Vendetta more story driven or character development driven? Vendetta is more story driven. Yeah. What's the story? You know, story Come on just, now. story time. Yeah, this story, is promo time. Ba- basically, <laughs> in a nutshell, this is the Jamaican version of Taken. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, Jamaican version of Jamaican Taken. Taken. The, the, the Jamaican <laughs> Taken. But all just aside, this movie was executive produced yeah. uh, uh, by Kimani Marley, also which is son of Bob Marley. Um, this also was written by uh, uh, Kimani Marley as well. Oh, it was written by him. Yeah, written by him. This is his first screenplay, although he's been an actor for years. Yeah. He's been a, 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 a writer of music his whole life. Yeah. This is his first official screenplay. He did a great job. And um, although in our movie we have very interesting characters, we don't spend a lot of time on making you fall in love with Kimani's character or fall in love with his antagonist. We want you to go on this journey with us, like in the movie Taken, yeah. of 
how many guys is he going to kill to get his brother back who was kidnapped? <laughs> oh. And that was our goal. This was this one wasn't supposed to be character driven. We want yeah. you to feel sorry for Kimani because his brothers got taken. Yeah, because they were really trying to get him, but they got his brother instead. We created that moment, so I got what I wanted. How does the Jamaican? I mean, is it set in Jamaica or where's it set? Oh, we shot it right here in Miami. Uh huh. But the characters are mostly uh, Jamaican. Uh, so it's really more like Caribbean influence. Yes. How does that change the development of the story? Because I noticed that, for example, a lot of I mean, I'm Afro Caribbean myself. Right. You know, we can be very joyful. Music is a huge deal mm -hmm. especially in the afro-caribbean anything caribbean when you go to a restaurant when you go to a store the music is kind of what entices you is that why you hired the uh, kimani marley in the first place other than his being a story is that he can do an amazing soundtrack well this is the thing this was kimani's movie he actually recruited me so this is this is like he's an oh. executive producer on it okay and um my thing is, you know, he came and sought out me and, and like I already had knew him from, you know, me and him had knew each other over 15 years at the time, you know, he uh, came to me about the movie idea. But, you know, being that their cultural influence in the movie, it really had no bearing on the story. Mm. Kimani just happened to be Jamaican and he got his Jamaican buddies in this movie. It really, it, this movie could have been told by, uh, you know, the uh, the Asian culture. It could have been a Haitian story. It could have been, but this particular time, you know, it just happened to be a uh, 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 Jamaican character-driven movie. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. We have come to the portion of the hot seat because I want to know exactly what these characters and these people were on set. So are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. The hot seat is basically a segment where we answer some or ask some fiery questions that are somewhat controversial, but will really make you think as a film director. Are you ready? Ready. Hot seat, 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 seat. We have no sound effects, so I have to be sound effect. Hot seat, 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 seat. Okay. Question number one. What is the most annoying thing most actors do on set? The most anno annoying thing. The most annoying thing actors do on set. Not saying Kimani did it. I'm just saying. <laughs> the most annoying actors do on set is. Hmm. Yeah. That's a good one. I can't think. You know. Unpleasant. Unpleasant. Kind of got on your nerves a little bit. Mm. See, that's why this is fiery, because it's like now this you're gonna be like, did I do that? <laughs> Just to give you something on top of my head. Yeah. Sometimes you get actors after I've said I think it's great, they're asking they do it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty of that. I'm not gonna lie, yeah. but go ahead. You know, sometimes, you know, and like I said, one of my business partners, good good buddies, Isaac here tell you, you know, look, I'm a good guy on set. And although we got to go and I think I'm happy with what I got, I will give you that extra take and you just got to nail it because we're not going to do it again. You know, but that's that's one thing to ask you a question. That's just one little thing. I love that. Okay. So for future actors, you know, mm -hmm. if the director says he's got it, mm -hmm. he's got it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> question number two. How would you rate the current actor's strike? One being not necessary. I don't know what they're talking about. You know, it's a little overrated. And 10 being completely vatted. And this should have happened years ago. And why? Well, listen, um, listen, I'm on the director's side. You know, I'm not in the DGA. I'm not part of the director's union yet. Mm -hmm. But um, our deal is done. The director's deal, we got done, no problem. I have solidarity with the actors because every 
thing I've done in my career, I've had to depend on an actor mm. to make it happen. So without you guys, there's no director Antoine Smith. Same. And it's not fair when I see close buddies of mine who's been in million dollar projects. I got I got friends of mine that's in million dollar projects, and they've shown me over the summer during the strike, Antoine, I'm gonna screenshot you my residual check from this TV show that grossed a hundred million dollars last year. Wow. And it says a dollar or something, or it says nine dollars. Thank you. Like, well, that's your cut, but it, Google said that yeah. this film made $150 million. Yeah. Or well, Google said that this TV show and revenue, gross revenue with advertising, it made $100 million. You get $9? So let me ask you it's a question. Right. This is this is number three now. I mean, it wasn't number three, but now this is number three. Do you think all directors are paid fairly? And do you think that your background and your class of people bumps up your check or makes your check a little lower for the same work? Mm, well, have you experienced this? Well, of course. Okay. Well, Keep yeah, it real. Yeah, yes, all directors don't always get what they're supposed to. Okay. You know, and yeah, sometimes depending on the class of people, aka or talent that you're working with, that might determine you know what you can get paid on the next one. If I'm like like I just said, you know, I, I've been doing this for years, so yeah. you know, I, I make a decent living directing on the indie level, and but on my next project. When I go negotiate my fee and they say, what's the last thing I did? Well, I'm going to say, well, hey, I, I just got through working with, you know, 35-year-old Glenn Plummer. You mm. know, I just got through working with, you know, uh, you know Dennis L.A. White, who's just, you know, $100 million film. And he's got stuff on BET. Like, that helps me uh, uh, make sure I get what I'm supposed to get because this is the caliber of talent I'm working with. See, this is where the politics comes in because people think money dictates talent. No. Mm-hmm. You could be an incredibly talented as a director, as uh, a filmmaker, as a gaffer, as a light person. Mm-hmm. Your check doesn't doesn't depend, doesn't value you. Nope. And that's something that people don't understand. Yeah. If actors, the reason why the actor strike is so big now, obviously, yeah. other than the whole AI issue, yeah. is if actors were paid what they deserve to get paid mm-hmm. versus what the producers paid were paid, yeah. then we can make a living doing this for the rest of your life. And don't you want to make movies for the rest of your life the and get paid? I mean, I think, Art is important yeah. as every other profession out there yeah. because it influences the way you grow up. It influences your community, right? right? And ultimately, it dictates what society thinks at the moment. Absolutely. And if you don't have something positive like your movies, right, then society goes down. Everything else goes down. I totally agree. Let me add to this too before we move on to yeah. the next hot seat question. Dun, dun, dun. Once again, <laughs> another reason why I have solidarity for that yeah. is it's just simple mathematics. Like I say, you know, if Marvel Studios can put out Avengers and it makes a billion dollars, that's not not a million, billion, billion, billion okay. makes a billion dollars. Well, what? Like just that one movie, that studio, Marvel, because they, they're part of the part of the ATMMP, you know, organization that's going against the actors. Well, why can't you just take a little? hundred million dollars mm-hmm. and just put it in that account, you know, that the mm-hmm. SAG after is just asking for it. That's just one studio. Just take that hundred million. You still got nine hundred million dollars gross worldwide in your Marvel bank account. Yeah. And that's before you, you give it to the streaming companies. Well, I'm going to still watch it again. I already paid 15 <sighs> bucks to watch it and got you the 900 million. Thank you. Now I'm going to pay again. Come on. To, to, to stream it, you know, in HD. 
and you're gonna make another three, four hundred million dollars off stream. Long story short, That's director, actor, gaffer, light person, pay the people, yeah. please. We're doing a service just like you. Yeah. So you understand my frustration. That, it's kind of like like definitely. in the movie Cuzzle, right? Oh, absolutely. Because it's just because he was an inmate, he came out of jail, right? right? right. Oh, I'm a lowball you. Why? Why? For the same job. Thank you. Thank you. So that's my stance. Like, that, come that, on. That's my soapbox. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Number four. Do you think the controversial Oscars blackout, right? Mm-hmm. We all know about that. Right. Do you think the situation has improved? Or do you think that things are just the same? Well, listen. It can be quick answers. Yeah, but... real quick. It has quick. improved to a certain extent. Like, mm-hmm. look, I see my peers, you know, um, you know, um, getting more awards. And sometimes we don't, we get nominated and we don't know when. But I've seen a little bit more nomination over the last 10 years. Which sometimes has to do with politics. Yeah, of but course. But anyway, go ahead. But I've seen, the people of, I've seen people of color, you know, get more nominations than they did from 2000 to 2010. So things are improving. Things are improving. But, you know, I would love to see that committee that votes. And I know, I think actors votes. I think there's a foreign committee. I would like to see them open up their uh, perspective to people of color getting nominated and winning, not just nominated. And the final question, are you ready? Mm-hmm. It's going to make you a little nervous. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't mean to bring it to this, to this level. You're good. You, you, you drink some water? Yeah, let me take a sip. Take a sip. Take a sip of the water because you're going to need a quick. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Who is the funniest Wayne's brother? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you. Marlon. Marlon. <laughs> but I have to ask you this before we go. Yeah. I have to ask you this. Yeah. How do you wish to be remembered? Good question. Uh, I'm going to try to answer yeah. As short as I can. Yeah. I definitely want to be remembered remember for my body of work, but I, more importantly than my body of work, I, I want to be remembered as mm. a fair director mm. that gave opportunities and, 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 and that people don't forget me for that. That's uh, more important to me than the body of work. I want to. An equal opportunity director. Right. I want to be. I want to be a guy that was remembered for that. I gave opportunities to people that would never have gotten a chance. I mean, you gave the, yeah. the character who played Emmett. Yeah. Mike that was Smith. his first. I mean, Mike, Mike Smith. You yeah. gave him his first shot. And it's yeah. like the chicken before the egg syndrome, right? Yeah, if absolutely. you don't give someone a shot, right? Absolutely. And it worked out. If there was one word, mm-hmm. and this is what, you know, all the podcasts, I'm going to try to end it with this. If there is one word that sums up a total of your works, what would that be? One word. Mm. sums up everything it could be any word it could be an adverb it could be a a conjunction a name one word one word that Mm -hmm. sums up all of the work I've done yeah Mm. I know it's a hard car question that's a hard one there's no long it's one word I would say which is the name of my company Uh vigorous I use the word. Mm-hmm. I, I use the mm-hmm. word vigorous because if you look up Griggers, you Google it right now. Uh-huh. It means um, that you, and don't quote me on the yeah. exact definition. It means that you're going after something with intent, oh. and that's been the journey of my career. And in my films, I'm always vigorous. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm always trying to tell a story with intent. 
Mm. And I'm vigorously trying to make sure you guys are entertained. <laughs> Vigorous. I like that word. If Mr. Antoine Smith's story tells you anything, that you may have everything right in front of you. And it may not be a glorious thing to the naked eye, right? Mm -hmm. But with the right eye, like his eye, right? Yep. A treasure is inevitable. Yep. See, to all aspiring talent out there, never underestimate your unique story, your talent, or your point of view. Because if you value it and most importantly share it with the world, who knows who you may impact and inspire? Basically, if you build it, they will come. That's right. Antoine, this has been an honor to begin this journey with you. And my film family, uh, if you enjoyed this or are curious about it or just want to make a comment about it, because there's no right or wrong answers. So you want to learn more about this podcast, always remember to subscribe to Cinema Pathway Podcast on your favorite podcast platform and visit our online store at paradoxicalfilms.com slash store to get all of your Cinema Pathway gear and follow us ultimately at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast. Can you say it with me? Yeah. Cinema. Cinema. Underscore. Underscore. Pathway. Pathway. Underscore. Underscore. Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> For yeah. all your behind the scenes photos and more. Guys, until the next time. My film family. Yeah. And I definitely want to say something before we cut out. Yeah. Just want to thank you. You was a great, great host. I appreciate you guys and your team having me on the show. And um, definitely, you know, I recommend any filmmaker, any technician. Maybe even up-and-coming up actors, you guys should definitely tap in with them. Follow them on Instagram, Facebook, all social media platforms. And come up on this show. And I'm going to tell you something. Always, you know, um, keep your doors open to the up-and-comers. You know, like, you know, I've been around for years. I've established myself. But you never know who's going to walk through this door. And like I say, 10 years from now, and they're going to be some. So always keep your doors open to the up-and-comers. You know, and because they may be hiring you <laughs> in five years. So, and again, it's what? Cinema underscore yep. pathway, pathway underscore podcast. That's right. The God be the guys, guys. See you oh, next time. Oh, 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 oh. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Oh, Antoine. And follow me on all platforms. Yes, please. How do we follow Mr. Antoine? Oh, yeah. Instagram, direct Antoine Smith. Twitter, Antoine Smith 305. And Facebook, Antoine D. Smith. Antoine D. Smith. Antoine is A-N-T-W-A-N. Smith is S-M-I-T-H. Until next time. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us in the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Michael Angel Malachi. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is the lovely Juliette Asson. And our associate producer is Victor Hugo Pereira. Executive producer and editor is Freddie R. Rodriguez. This was a presentation by Paradoxical Films. And please visit our website at www.paradoxicalfilms.com. Again, that's www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. And you can also email us if you like at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com. Again, that's cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you can send all comments, suggestions, hopefully good ones and constructive ones for all future episodes.